All right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1204 for the week of Monday, August 10th, 2020. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. Glad to be here. We've got a lot to unravel, so let's get moving. Oh, yes, we do. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. It's a good time. It's the right time. Let's go. All right. Uh, let's kick things off. Then we have two major topics that we're going to touch on today with a few other little ones in between. So let's get right into it. Our two big ones, of course, is Mars 2020 and the landing of Crew Dragon. We'll get to Crew Dragon shortly. We're going to start with the third of the Martian trifecta following the UAE and China's launches to the Red Planet. Perseverance launched from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station on July 30th at 7.50 a.m. Eastern Time aboard an Atlas V 541 rocket. That means a 5-meter fairing, four solid rocket motors, and one second-stage engine. Uh, the launch went beautifully and successfully and is now on its way to Jezero Crater with a scheduled landing of February 18th, 2021. Now, Talking Space was actually at this launch. I was able to get there, and we'll get to that in just a moment because I know we love the launch audio. But, uh, <laughs> Gene, this is uh, this is an exciting one to go three for three now so far. Yeah, and this particular flight, Mars 2020, a.k.a. Perseverance, good Lord, is there a better name for a, a spacecraft during these, this period of time? Um, this this spacecraft is, is quite a quite a, uh, a, 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 a robust rover. Uh, it is essentially the first in a three-pronged attack that we are going to go ahead on Mars to really, really, truly find out if at some point in time life existed on that world. It's it kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying this right now, and it kind of makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck when, when I... When I think about it, the the rover is about maybe ten feet long. It's it's it may look like it's a distant cousin, um, the Curiosity rover on the outside, but on the inside, there's a lot more going on on than meets the eye. Um, the the mass cam is um, a lot more robust. Uh, there is a uh, ultraviolet spectrometer on board, but one of the instruments that really, really got a heck of a lot of attention is the uh, the Moxie or Mars Oxygen ISRU experiment. This is a device that is really set up to synthesize the carbon dioxide in and around the Mars atmosphere and see if we could actually make oxygen out of that atmosphere. If we can, then guess what? When our crews go there in 2035, we hope, knock on wood, um, they will be able to go ahead and create their own atmosphere from the Martian surface rather than going ahead and carry all that oxygen home even by the time we get our crews there they could go ahead and hook up into possibly oxygen supplies that have already been set up for them robotically so that's really really kind of ex an exciting aspect of this mission we're going to finally see if we can really indeed live off the land um, another aspect of this particular flight is of course 
the Ingenuity helicopter. This thing weighs about four pounds, and it is when it when it really really launches out of the the midsection of the rover, it will be really a Wright Brothers moment. Um, it will be the first powered flight on another world. Think about that just for a second. Um, it will not be deli delivering pictures in real time, um, but it will be delivering photo and photography from uh, from the helicopter and be looking back down. I think one of its first pictures is going to be looking back down at the rover. But then after that, it will be flying away at a distance out of the way from the rover. And I believe it, it's it's set up to, to last about 30 days on the surface. Um, again, this is a, a test to see if this thing can actually fly um, on the Martian surface, very similar to what the first rover, the Sojourner rover, was in the 1990s. So it, it, there's a lot going on on this particular mission, but this is this is really the first time that we are really setting out to look look for look for uh, life on another world. So. It's going to be kind of exciting. Um, we are also going to be caching samples for later retrieval. Uh, while we're on the surface, uh, there will be about 32 of these little sample cores that will be placed at areas in and around where, uh, in and around Jezero Crater, where the rover is is exploring. Those will be cached for later retrieval um, for a. Um, a Mars retrieval mi mission, which is scheduled for, I think the first element may be going in 2026, but there is really, really a, a convoluted setup leading to a uh, return of Mars samples by 2031. Now, one of the questions that was asked during one of the press conferences was, you know, when will we really, really know when, you know, if life ever really existed on Mars. Well, you know, first off, tracking down that life is a is a convoluted process, and I'm not going to go through, um, you know, why that is. But you, we really want to go ahead and get those samples back to make that call and say, yeah, indeed, you know, there was or was not at some point life here, because it's going to be the analysis of those samples that will really, really confirm that for us. Um, so we're going to be in a position where you know, scientists and geologists and um, life scientists can go ahead and pick and choose where they think we might want to select once we get there. So this is this is really swear an exciting mission um, for not only for NASA and for the United States, but really the really humanity. This is really the first um, one of the first missions that, that is going to ask: Are we alone in the universe? And was there a moment on Mars where the ingredients for life came together and was able to go ahead and make? You know, where cells were able to go ahead and make crude copies of themselves. So it, it, it's really, really trying to go ahead and find out, are we really alone here? And that is the real exciting part of this mission. I mean, there's a lot of exciting parts, that for sure. The fact that the, one of the first photos of the rover isn't going to be just a selfie like we've been getting from Curiosity. It's going to be from a helicopter it's pretty cool. And again, that the atmosphere is 
at a point where you can fly a helicopter on Mars is really cool. There's so much excitement with that. Um, I mean, it's you think from everything you see and hear, and if you look at it, you would think it's just basically a clone copy of Curiosity. And while it's about the same size and has the same landing technique with the seven minutes of terror and the sky crane, there is so much more to this mission than they did with Curiosity. And it's exciting. I mean, the one of the coolest things is the fact that we're talking about, we've talked about uh, in situ resource utilization, uh, which is basically you go somewhere and you mine it for the things you need. So for fuel, for water, mainly you hear about that with the moon. Uh, you don't hear that that much with Mars because one of the main resources that we are going to need is oxygen. And when you have an atmosphere that's full of carbon dioxide, you've got a great opportunity there. And this mission is doing that as well. Yeah. So the other thing, too, you mentioned is, you know, the seven minutes of terror and all that. We may actually get to hear and see some of that, not in real time, but... We may, because because of the video cameras that are on board the spacecraft, there is also a microphone. For, so for the first time, as we traverse the surface, we're actually going to hear the crunching of the wheels uh, on, on, on the rover. We're actually going to hear, you know, the Martian wind. We're actually going to hear, you know, the, the, the surface of Mars as this rover kind of traverses that area. Also, we're actually going to get photographs of, of entry, descent, and landing from the from the rover standpoint, it, it'll be one of the first, the first time I think that's been ever done before. Now we're not going to get those in real time. They'll be transmitted later, after um, you know, after the rover is signaled, "Hey, I'm here," and those will be sent on another pass. But while the the, the rover is on the surface, because one of the first things we want to do is to take a photograph of where the rover is and what condition it's in. You know, is it upright? Is is it, is everything okay? So it will it will first go ahead and take a picture of, of, of its own surroundings and where it's at. But it will it those the photographs of EDL and, and a lot of the, the sounds and the images, they'll be sent up post-landing. So it, it, that's another aspect of this that we've never seen before. So it, it, it'll be not only a great help to uh, to engineers as we go forward to try to plot how, you know, entry, descent, and landing from Mars works, but also it'll be a great, you know, it, it'll be a great outreach for, for NASA in that respect and that the public can actually see what this thing would, what, what an entry, descent, and landing is, is really all about. Yeah, the landing cam. Uh, it is the first time that we will have a full video, not just still images pieced together into a video, but an actual video camera on board recording entry, descent, and landing, as you mentioned, EDL. So there's a lot of excitement with that. And again, as silly as it is, hearing Mars. I mean, we've heard little bits of wind and things, but never from a rover. So to hear the crunch and the move is going to be exciting. And while we're talking about sound, I think... Now might be a good time before we hear the sounds on Mars, we should hear the sounds on Earth of the Atlas V lifting off with Perseverance. What do you say? Go for it. All right, let's play it. Enjoy those four solid rocket motors.
Oh, Sawyer, I'm envious. I really wish I was there. Mark, you and I were there for uh, uh, the uh, uh, for the MSL rover or the uh, or the Mars Curiosity rover, and uh, I, I every every time I hear that 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 Atlas light, I, I think of you know the, you and I sitting on on top of the uh, the launch control um, uh, the roof of the launch control center, listening to that and and. Uh, that if you recall there was a really weird sound that we think got kind of caught up in the louvers on the um either on the vehicle assembly building or on the uh, the launch center itself because it really made some sort of you know if you listen to it I, and I kind of r- wish I had it at my fingertips I don't it really made this this howl al- almost as it was going going up but um Sawyer that was just just incredible that was taken right along the water from the ITL Causeway, which is on Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Um, we'll get more into that because I know there's a lot of people, I'm sure, that are curious of what it's like covering a launch during a quarantine and during coronavirus. And for someone like me who's been living at home and working from home, uh, I'll go into that in a minute. But Mark, I know you wanted to add more about uh, Ingenuity, the helicopter. Yeah, sure do. And and as I start into that, I want to reflect back on Curiosity for a moment uh, for that launch that, that we're talking about uh, that Gene just referred to. Um, the young woman who at the time was a sixth grader who named Curiosity, she's the one who came up with the name that was selected for uh, MSL. Um, I saw something recently where she uh, was interviewed and talking about how being able to choose the name for the rover has changed her life. And that's one of the things that, you know, here we are talking about perseverance and ingenuity. Who knows the, the people that, that pick those names, who knows where they're going to end up. And I remember being at the press site, uh, the young woman's name was Clara Ma and I met her and her family. And I said, I feel like I should have a t-shirt. I met Clara Ma. And I don't think it really impressed them, my my witty little comment, but uh, who knows where people are going to go in the future. So back to ingenuity. One of the things that I, I have to wonder about, and I honestly don't know the answer to this, so often we look at NASA as being the organization that that's cutting edge, that comes up with things that have never been done before. And yet I can't help but think that it's our society and our technology today that brought about probably not too many years ago, somebody saying, hey, why can't we fly a, hate to use the term, but why can't we fly a drone on Mars? And they developed from that, perhaps, perhaps, I'm guessing, you know, this concept of the Ingenuity helicopter. Uh, It's interesting how NASA influences are the world around us, and I think there's probably a certain amount of influence that the world around us has on NASA, too. To kind of chime in on that a little bit, one of the things that uh, they were talking about was if this technology proves successful, that Ingenuity works pretty much the way they, they hope, uh, there's a possibility that it might actually be used for other other aspects of uh, of Mars exploration, for instance, one of the uh, one of the things that was brought up was that all right, you are um, an expedition on the surface, and you are not in your you know satellite coverage for communication with say 
the main spacecraft or the expedition home base. Can you go ahead and use this particular technology, this helicopter, in order to go ahead and bounce communication signals off of it and and send a uh, a message to where you are. Maybe there's a ravine or something, or or, or a cliff or something that's kind of blocking your your line of sight. Sight, and uh, you really need to to reach out to the home base just to let them know that you're okay. Can you use this technology to go ahead and and manipulate that? Um, can you use that, this technology to go ahead and scout ahead to see? to plan traverses and say, okay, hey, you know, this looks kind of interesting. Maybe we want to stop there, that kind of thing. So this is just one tool in the toolbox that perhaps NASA will be using going forward. And another thing I'm just, and, and again, I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm wondering too, if the Dragonfly folks, for folks that don't know what Dragonfly is, it's also the use of a drone or a helicopter of some sort that is going to be going to Titan later on. I'm wondering too, if, if those folks have been collaborating at all, my guess is probably, and they're going to be looking at the ingenuity helicopter with you know some very big interest and in, and in trying to see if they can design dragonfly any better using that technology so again mark you know bravo for 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 the insight oh yeah i mean the potential for this is amazing there's so many things on this mission that have the potential the potential for discovering life the potential for drones or helicopters or other flying vehicles on mars this, again, it's not your cookie-cutter mission from MSL, from Curiosity, from 2012. Looks can be deceiving. So it's exciting. We've also learned some lessons from Curiosity. If you recall, Mark, the the configuration on the tires, uh, they have been having some issues with the tires on the Curiosity rover. It has been one of the, the thorns in the side of the program. Um it was kind of, the tire design was 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 kind of interesting in that they they wanted to put on the side of the uh the you know the the walls of the tires NASA JPL or whatever and because of some sort of commercial issue they couldn't do that so they decided to go ahead and put JPL in Morse code on the treads of the tires which i thought was an interesting way of kind of solving the problem if you will the problem was though that that the, the tires just were not designed to be well they just weren't as as robust as they they had hoped they were which may be one of the the drawbacks to you know Curiosity's longevity, but they're going to go ahead and get as many years as they can out of that that uh, particular machine, as long as the RTG keeps keeps humming along. That's the other thing too. This is also powered by a RTG here, or a uh, what is it? A radioactive thermoelectric generator. There. Um, the difference is the RTG on Curiosity came from well you know the the um the uh, plutonium 238 on curiosity came from russia so in a way russia finally got got to mars 
This, I believe, is a totally domestic source for uh, plutonium-238, which is essentially the, the isotope that decays and keeps the, the, the rover going. Um, that is domestic. The, the, the Department of Energy really, really had a, a presence, if I recall, at a lot of the press conferences and was able to field questions about the ultimate supply of... Um, plutonium-238, and Mark, this is something that um, we've talked about on this program, if I recall, a couple of times. Uh, you and I have had a couple of conversations on that. Um, that supply is thankfully getting a lot better, but the tire, getting back to the tires, the tires on this thing are a lot more robust than they were on uh, on curiosity. So it will be very interesting to see how those tires perform. And if they perform well, I'm sure they will be upgraded on future rovers and possibly even craft that we might actually drive around in. Yeah. It, again, it's a cool idea in theory, uh, but I think performance is preferred over writing your name in Morse code in the Martian dust. Anyway, I, I was talking about earlier that we were right along the water there. And uh, before I talk about covering the launch, I have to give the biggest shout out I can think of at the moment uh, to Jim Williams with the 45th Space Wing and uh, the United States Air Force slash Space Force. And he was the one who was kind enough to let Talking Space in through the Air Force media credentials uh, after we were denied by NASA for the last two launches. So a big thank you to him. And all of this, again, is because of the coronavirus and COVID-19 here in the United States. Uh, there's a lot of extra restrictions and social distancing rules in place. And they really had their act together. I mean, it, it is the U.S. military. I would expect nothing less. But, I mean, it was such a well-run, well-oiled machine that Mr. Williams has out there. And um, the way that we ended up working this out was we caravaned out from the normal spot that we do. And then once we get out there, we back into our spot. Now, each person was required to keep 10 feet of distance. Here in the United States, it's a recommended six feet uh, or two meters of distance between people. And I appreciated that extra distance. Basically, what all the media members did was, since all of us that were there along the causeway were driving our own cars, we backed our cars in and kind of set up invisible lines so imagine there's a gap between each of the cars draw an invisible line from the middle of your car to the other car on each side which is about six to ten feet depending on the size of your car and that was basically your spot you could go as far down as you want as far back as you want up to the roadway the rest was up to you that was your way of keeping your six to ten feet of distance from each other Everyone was wearing face masks. They were required uh, to get on site. You had to wear a face covering of some kind. And uh, again, it was just so well organized and well handled. And I felt really safe as someone who is on immunosuppressants and has other underlying conditions that put me well into the at-risk category. I felt completely safe and comfortable with that. Even the day before, there was a select few of us that ended up going out to the launch pad to get some pictures of the rocket. Uh, there's maybe 10 of us for that. We all, same thing, caravan out, had our masks on. Uh, while we were trying to set cameras up next to each other or other people were, they were 
pacing themselves out. So some of them would set up their cameras in the back first while others set up in the front so that there was a gap between people so that you didn't have everyone shoulder to shoulder breathing on each other right next to each other, even though, again, we were all wearing coverings and we all kept ourselves spaced out and apart even while we were talking to each other. A lot of the conversations were either from a distance or just a wave and a thumbs up to some of the people that we're used to seeing out there. But again, to be able to do all that during a pandemic was amazingly well handled. And I cannot give enough praise to the media team at the 45th Space Wing. Sawyer, I'm going to go ahead also and give a a, a shout out too, to, to Jim Williams and, and number one, making sure that... Uh, a, we got in there, and we do really, really appreciate uh, the work that uh, uh, the 45th Space Wing did to accommodate Talking Space, but also to ac- accommodate you and to, you know, with, with some of the concerns you have. But I thought that was a very, very intelligent way of, of dealing with the problem, a.k.a. the coronavirus. I mean over here it's usually we've been doing the the six foot distance in you know everywhere but they were really really stringent on the 10 foot distance and i thought that was a a, just a a a remarkable idea and a remarkable kind of kind of thing to do but again i want to give kudos uh again to mr williams for getting us in there and uh because without Without him, we we couldn't have brought that uh, that launch audio to you. So um, so Jim Williams, I hope you're listening, and and a thousand thank yous for uh, for getting our representative in there. As that representative, I have to say thank you as well. But the crazy thing is, there actually is somewhat of a tie-in between Mars missions and pandemics. Uh, Mark, I'll let you take this one. You know, we uh, we have a kind of a topic we're fond of. Uh, for quite a while, actually, here on Talking Space, and that's the NASA spinoffs. And so this is where this starts. But when you see the news and you see other countries and in the U.S. and here, there, and everywhere, you see the, the, uh, the workers with the foggers going around, and you wonder, gee, what is that? Is it, is it theater or is it really effective? Well, it's effective, at least in terms of what I'm going to tell you about. So in 2018, the NASA spinoffs uh, highlighted something that is what I'm going to introduce, and I'll let you look into it yourself. But just do a search on spinoff.nasa.gov, and the topic of sterilizing fogger cleans ambulances with a breeze. That's the article that got me started here. And to me, it's... It's, it starts off with a scene of paramedics racing into a home. The last thing you want to worry about is where was that ambulance before it came to you? Traces of the earlier calls and, and bacteria and all of these things could still be on the equipment bags, even the uniforms the EMTs are wearing. So an innovative new product with NASA's help came along that uses... Atomic oxygen and oxidation, two things NASA is familiar with. Uh, atomic oxygen is a, a bit of a challenge in space to the degree that when they were developing the uh, solar arrays for the International Space Station, one of the materials that they uh, had looked at for construction was something that would have only survived six months in space. And so they came up with a different plan, and it's the atomic oxygen 
that uh, was tearing up certain materials. So that's an advantage when you come down here on Earth because a uh, employee who had worked as a paramedic for uh, starting more than 20 years ago in 2014 started thinking about disinfecting ambulances. He says, you know, we do the good hand hygiene, you wash your hands, you wear gloves, you do all of the things that are right, but they weren't looking at the gear or the vehicles as being a possible host for disease. Along comes 2014, the Ebola epidemic was at its height, and medical personnel, especially including first responders, were most vulnerable to infection. And it brought this question of how can we prevent this contamination from affecting our workers that are responding to help people. So this individual, uh, Jason Thompson, worked for a Kent, Ohio-based company called Emergency Products and Research. They contacted NASA, and it was the NASA's Regional Economic Development Program and their field center that offers a limited amount of consulting for with a NASA subject matter expert for various purposes. So they contacted NASA. NASA put them in touch with someone who helped to develop this, uh, essentially a, a fogger that disperses this mist. And they came up with a product. Talk about technology transfer helping us folks. They came up with a product called Ambustat. And on a website I'm looking at, they show Ambustat being a small, a relatively small handheld device and versus the competition, which is a looks like it's half the size of a refrigerator. And they contrast the affordability of it. The Ambustat's $2,500. The competition is $15,000 plus. Portability, Ambustat weighs 12 pounds. The competition, 54 pounds plus. Ease of use, they're equal. Uh, they mechanically clean the ambulances. They take this Ambustat system with their cold sterilant, and it produces a dry fog that destroys pathogens. It takes 10 minutes. They close the doors. They let it sit for 15 minutes. That's dwell contact time. Next thing you do, they ventilate it, let the uh, fog evaporate from surfaces that it's touched. It's residue-free. And five minutes later, you're ready to go back to work. So in less than an hour, you clean something that there was really no practical way to clean. So where are we today? Well, now one of the things is, okay, we've got a, a product that's good for ambulances, police cars. It takes less than an hour. But what can we do on a larger scale? And so NASA Glenn Research Center is now, again, contributing their expertise and lab capability to help this company understand droplet size distribution of their product, how it disperses this sterilant into spaces such as the crevices of a police car and larger ones like classrooms and dining areas. Another goal was to minimize the amount of it used to reduce costs without uh, sacrificing effectiveness. So once again, NASA has moved forward to provide something that had its uh, beginnings with Mars. We started out talking about Mars. And this, this technology was developed to make sure that the spacecraft we sent to the red planet were clean, that we weren't taking life with us to Mars that would then be discovered and, oops, no, it's not really Mars life. It's what came from Earth. And so this technology development 
gave us uh, planetary protection. Is that the right term? I hope I'm not getting my terms mixed up. But it uh, it takes a, a clean spacecraft to the red planet, and it also protects us. And hopefully it'll be developed further to provide some additional safety for the big areas, the things like schools and classrooms that uh, there's so much concern about right now. Yeah, I think, Mark, I, I believe, too, when, when uh, NASA made the announcement about the, uh, the ventilators that they put together um, for, um, I think it was, you know, they put those ventilators in about 37 days. That particular spinoff that you're talking about, I think that also came into, it came into the, uh, the picture. And indeed, I think they are working on ways to go ahead and expand that for schools, for large auditoriums, heck, even I think for shopping malls at this point, to try to see if they could they could go ahead and expand that and and make it work for for larger environments. Um, the other po- possible application I'm thinking is, you know, we're talking about human beings. We're you know, like it or not, we're one of the most dirtiest things in a known universe. Can, do you envision possibly? And this might be a question for the folks working on this thing. But I'll you know, has this actually been used on the space station? Number one and number two is. Could it be used on future, you know, lunar missions where you have to go ahead and clean um, surfaces and so on, or even out to Mars when, again, you have to clean surfaces? And and would this be part of a daily maintenance for human systems going forward? I mean, I'm thinking gateway. I'm thinking all of it. Well, one of the things that I, I read in the notes on a couple of different articles I'm referring to is they mentioned that uh, it's it's used in a room that has no people in it. And it's closed up. So it's not something that you can occupy the space that you're trading. Uh, so there's probably a lot of ways around that. And it may improve uh, as well to where there'll be further developments that'll make it uh, human-friendly. Yeah, because I, I can definitely see the application down here on Earth, but I can also see the application for long-term missions, and that's where we're going here. I believe Gateway is only supposed to be there for, um, well, it's only supposed to be piloted for 90 days per increment. Um, maybe at the end of the increment, the plan is to chuck one of these little <laughs> things in there and take <laughs> off. You know, I mean... It, um, I'm I'm chuckling because the the crew that's leaving uh, Gateway uh, don't remember to to toss a fogger in there and close the door before you leave. <laughs> but hey, you know that 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 might be the modus operandi going forward. Who knows? So you know there there was a uh, a discussion about work done at NASA Glenn and the NASA administrator Brian Stein. He was talking about what they had accomplished, and the article I'm reading from is at the end of April, just a few months ago. And he said that he put out a call uh, for ideas on how to help the U.S. through the uh, pandemic, and they got more than 250 suggestions in just two weeks. So, you know, the brain power at, at NASA and and being directed in any any direction needed uh, is does phenomenal things. It's it's just it's so good to hear. Uh, if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the NASA spinoffs. They are fantastic. There's a whole website. They put out a book every year of them. And there's a lot in there that you probably wouldn't even realize are based off of NASA tech, including that one. So thank you, Mark. And I should say that we are not sponsored by them in any way, shape, or form. 
All right, so now on to our other major story that we were talking about off the top of the show, and that is the return of the Crew Dragon Endeavor back to Earth after just about 64 days in space. The uh, spacecraft splashed down successfully in the Gulf of Mexico near Pensacola, Florida, as opposed to its, one of its original planned landing sites on the eastern side of the state because of Tropical Storm Isaias making its way through at the time. But the crew, marking the first splashdown in the United States in about 45 years, successfully returning back to Earth. Uh, there were a few little quirks, though, with the landing involving some fumes and some boats. Yeah, the the one the quirk number one is uh, definitely the entourage that greeted Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley home. There were some civilian watercraft in the area, and uh, unfortunately, those. I, I mean, I, I I understand the excitement and wanting to be a part of part of history and all of that, but. You know, when you go ahead and converge on an area that, you know, folks are trying to go ahead and work and get these guys safely to uh, to a, a recovery uh, vessel, uh, and you're running around on, on your boat, you're not helping the situation anyway, and you're interfering with a recovery operation, you're interfering with um essentially you're putting not only your own lives at risk because as sawyer pointed out um there are possible hypergolic fumes in and around the spacecraft hypergolics are a fuel that's used for the uh the thrusters on board dragon and they've been used in spacecraft for for decades by hypergolic is we're talking about two substances that don't like each other and when they get together they they fire off and unfortunately they also have one of the byproducts is you know fumes it's one of the reasons why you had a a fleet of individuals going toward um, the orbiter to make sure that there were no toxic fumes in and around the orbiter. If you noticed, they were all in sort of hazmat gear or, 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 or that as they surrounded the orbiter during the shuttle days. Here, it's sort of the same thing. You know, you've got divers in the water um, that, are, that are trying to go ahead and, and make sure that those fumes don't exist in and around the spacecraft to make sure that it's safe to approach. And, and we had a bunch of boat operators. I'm not going to use the word mariner because to borrow a, a term from uh, Frank Culbertson, um, that would imply, you know, some sort of responsibility. Um, the, uh, the, these boat operators that were, you know, kind of whizzing around the capsule and all this, and you're interfering not only with a recovery operation, but you're also putting a your own life at risk. B the risk of the individuals that are going ahead and trying to recover two astronauts that have spent you know, quite some time on the International Space Station, and you are going ahead and putting the crew inside that vehicle at risk. So, um, from what I understand, there were two um, Coast Guard vessels trying to go ahead and, and weed the area out. They were kind of overwhelmed um, because of the, the, the weekend boaters. 
and uh, you know it was just something that uh, NASA during the press conferences felt that well okay fine we got to be better at it next time and I'm sure they're going to be placing some other additional protocols together. It's also tricky when you're doing this in international water, which extends, I believe the United States coastline extends about 12 miles out. After that, it's fair game. It's international water where the Coast Guard can do their best, but they don't technically have jurisdiction. I forget what the legal term is, but it basically says, okay, you know, we're conducting operations here. You go your way, I go mine and neither the twain meet. That could be invoked. I know Jim Bridenstine has mentioned it several times and in, in, on various occasions for in other venues. And um, it was something that the example that he would give would be, you know, two, um, uh, two uh, fighter aircraft, one from an, one country, one from another, encountering each other and basically, you know, leaving each other alone because, you know, they've got their thing to do, we've got our thing to do, and neither the twain meet. Uh, again, I'm, I'm just, I'm just happy that the crew is home. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the mission ended successfully. I am absolutely, you know, <laughs> you know, we've got, this proves that we have our domestic launch capability back for 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 human launch and uh i'm i'm thrilled at the possibility that uh you know we're going to be you know launching again in the not too distant future sawyer if i remember exactly it'll take about maybe six weeks to get through all of the data that um that the uh the endeavor recorded and they're going to go ahead and pick all of those those data points out, take a look at all of the, the information that it was able to gather, and and then make the determination on Crew-1. I think you know, SpaceX is saying that they could probably get Crew-1 up there um, by, what, September, I think it is? But I think it's more like, you know, probably more like mid-October or even toward Halloween, but we'll, we'll just see. After the show was recorded, a launch date was set for October 23rd. But again, my my hats off to the entire SpaceX team. They did a remarkable job. The NASA team involved also did a remarkable job. There were no NASA badges. You know, there was no NASA team. There was no SpaceX team. There was just one team out there just trying to make sure that... Um, you know, this mission went smoothly, so bravo to everybody involved. Yeah, and it sounds like there's still a few things that need to be worked on. The Coast Guard thing, I mean, the parachutes worked absolutely beautifully. The Go Navigator had a little bit of an issue as it was leaving port. Its backup generator failed, uh, so they went without it, and thankfully they didn't need it, and they were able to successfully bring the craft on board the Go Navigator ship, but for the future now they're adding an additional backup generator and then, of course, there was the uh, issue with the toxic fumes that we were talking about a little bit. They waited to get the crew out of the capsule because of that. Uh, they were getting readings that were not dangerous, but they were higher than they were expecting. So they basically said, hey, if you're comfortable in there, we're going to do some purges. So it sounds like one of the things they may look at in the future is doing that uh, the gas purge while they're working to get them recovered. So it started sooner. So by the time they get on board, all the extra gases have burned off. I'm going to use some basic 
terminology to start with. Um, the Dragon Endeavor bobbing in the ocean did not require having like a NASCAR race, people zooming around in circles for a victory lap. Uh, I think that it's unwise, uneducated, uh, perhaps foolish. The people that uh, moved in on the capsule for their photo ops with Dragon. But if I remember talking to some people at Cape Kennedy uh, in 2010 and 2011, it seems like one of the hazards of some of these propellant components is that if you inhale any, it can kind of liquefy your lungs from the inside out. Uh, I may be picking the wrong propellant and the wrong components. Nope, you're correct. But it's hazardous to the point where the people that are safing vehicles are in uh, self-contained breathing suits. I mean, not even just a face mask, but they're often in full, full-on suits to protect themselves. So it's unfortunate that happened. Uh, I hope they can come up with a good plan. I mean, they certainly protect the launch corridor from rockets going uphill. Let's hope they can find a, a good way of protecting the uh, splashdown zone. And it may just be as simple as, yeah, it'll be somewhere in the northern hemisphere. Yeah, Mark, you're not kidding on on liquefying or eating your lungs. I mean, it, it is that dangerous. And indeed, that's why you have, you know, the folks in full hazmat gear um, or had the folks in full hazmat gear during the shuttle days, if you will, surrounding the orbiter first. And one of the first th things that they did is they sniffed around and they, they looked for, for those hypergolic fuels and, and to see if it was in and around the air, around the orbiter. That meant it was not safe to approach yet. So, you know, they kind of let it kind of bubble and boil a little bit and let those those um those fumes kind of dissipate before even actually allowing the rest of the 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 uh the the, the team to approach the vehicle so you're you're absolutely correct in that it's a big problem and again something that they're now aware of and that they're going to work on and that's why this is a test flight it is a demo flight it is a flight to work out all these little things and also I found it interesting hearing the crew afterwards talking about what it was like. First off, the fact that as they were re-entering, they said it sounded like they were inside of a living creature, you know, as opposed to the comfy that is sitting back in your seat in the shuttle. You're a little further away. They were saying with all of the thrusters firing to keep the capsule upright and oriented correctly, <laughs> it basically sounded like it was alive and that they were inside the belly of the beast. And then... Of course, when you're used to landing on a runway, it's a lot nicer than after being up in space for 64 days. And I think they said it's like getting hit in the back of the seat with a baseball bat or something as they are landing. And I believe it was Bob Bankin that made the observation that uh, it sounded like you were inside, you know, some kind of living beast, if you will, or some kind of living creature. Um it, it it's definitely a, a a much more sportier ride than 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 shuttle ever was, but uh, uh, it still has its inherent risks and, and inherent uh, inherent problems. Um, it, but uh, again, they they made sure that you know the heat shield worked, everything worked just fine. One of the other things too, they they did test was a sat phone. If you recall, 
um, when a few years, a couple of years back, when they had that issue on Soyuz and it had to abort a takeoff and come back down, um, the crew on board used a sat phone to let everybody know, hey, we're here, we're okay. Um, that sat phone is in there for emergency purposes in the event, too, that, you know, they're saying, okay, we, we kind of landed off, off course here, the coordinates, we're, you know, we're, we're here. But we're, you know, we're, we're in good shape or even to report that maybe they're not in so in so good shape. But they wanted to test that and made, make sure that that capability worked. So they made um, the, the game plan was to make a telephone call to um, to Hawthorne and to the core officer in the mission control center there. And that went kind of well. But uh, they decided that uh, they were going to go ahead and try some other telephone numbers. They called the uh, flight director station at the Mission Control Center in Houston. They called uh, uh, home, uh, tried to make some other telephone calls. Sometimes, and it's just like with any other technology, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. In fact, I still remember um, during the uh, the first time we heard back from the crew, uh, Doug Hurley kind of saying, yeah, we were, were, so here we were, we're just kind of bobbing up and down in the ocean, uh, making a whole bunch of crank telephone calls to the, uh, using the sat phone, and then he points over to uh, Elon Musk and said, yeah, he gets the bill for all that, by the way, so it was just a moment of brevity in, in, in the whole whole uh, whole thing, but uh, uh, a lot of systems had to work and come to play, and gosh darn it, they everything all worked out, and again, this was the, um, as uh, Sawyer, I believe it was you that pointed out, this was the first time we've splashed down um, in the ocean uh, with crew since the Apollo-Soyuz test flight back in 1975, and just as an addendum, going back full circle to the first topic we talked about, they had a problem with toxic fumes coming into the spacecraft. We almost lost that crew as a result. The things you forget after, I believe it was 45 years, so. But we're relearning how to splash down again. And uh, again, demo flight, test, it's a lot of learning. A lot of things that, little things, it sounds like they need to be worked out. The biggest takeaway, though, is that all of the big things worked. The important things worked. We have, for the most part, a 99.99% functioning spacecraft. Admittedly, every spacecraft is different. Every mission is different. You can't take anything for granted. But for a first test flight, I would say that we have a big, big prospect here for some major future success. I was just going to say not to take anything away from from all of the uh, positive things we're saying, but I've added to my list of things that I uh, doubt I will ever do again. The first item on my list was RSS retract at the space shuttle days. Uh, I did that once, and after that, it's like, no, thank you very much. And splashdown, yep, I watched my splashdown coverage, and that's something I don't think I'm going to take time to do again. Boring? Yes, in my opinion. Exciting? Yeah, it's exciting that everything worked. Uh, I know that was something that they spoke of with a little hint of, uh, I don't even know if the concern is the right word, but, you know, with launch, after a successful launch, they said we need to bring them home. So I, I know there were no guarantees with that, 
But as well as it went, I doubt I'm going to watch it again. Gee whiz. Sorry. Uh, that's that's surprising to me. I It's different. I feel like, you know, with Shuttle, once it lands, you're just sitting there staring at it on a runway. At least this one, you've got the boat closing in. You've got, I mean, boats that we weren't expecting to close in. And it may just be that was part of the excitement is the firstness of it, for lack of a better word, if that is a word. Um, but it's I, I thought it was it was different. Again, seeing the thing craned up onto the ship and just everything with it. It felt so old yet new, which was kind of nice to see in HD. Yeah, the um, the other thing, too, is you've got, you know, this one gentleman that has to get up onto the onto the the spacecraft and take a couple of things off remove the parachute connections so they so the parachutes can be recovered um that's that's a lot of guts there too <laughs> i might add um what just see him jumping off into the water off the capsule yeah i mean well you know considering too we don't know you know what the well i'm sure thermally it's okay um but i don't really know you know what the deal is but still it, that, that's another that's another thing that that we have not seen in a very long time um it, having the vehicle hoisted up onto the deck of a of of the recovery vessel with the crew inside that's something else we we haven't seen usually the crew you know leaves the spacecraft and gets plucked out of the water through a raft and and hoisted up onto a, a navy helicopter this time they waited until you know uh, they got the crew on board to to get them out of there. And uh, um, again, very similar to a Soyuz recovery. They go ahead, they throw the the, the folks on a on a stretcher because you're kind of shaky getting out of there after so long a period of time in space. Um, so they've they've got that stretcher waiting for you. They take you downstairs. They do the whole medical checkup and uh you are pretty much on an on a navy helicopter bound for pensacola um right after that so uh it's it it, it as you pointed out sawyer what's old is, is new again one of the observations i will make though is and this is something that was kind of kind of talked about a little bit in, on some of the social media circles um, in fact, one of the, 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 I believe it was, was a NASA individual or, or, or somebody was saying, gee, maybe we ought to just call this, um, Bob and Megan's, uh, uh, bus because, uh, Megan MacArthur is, uh, been, a, uh, Bob Banken's wife is assigned to, uh, to crew two and, uh, she will be flying that spacecraft, the same uh, spacecraft her husband flew so that, that, just a little bit of an aside yeah uh, again it's nice to hear differing opinions on things uh, we don't always agree with each other that's for sure and I think one topic that uh, will demonstrate that is this <laughs> next conversation we're about to have here uh, within the last week of recording this uh, SpaceX successfully completed uh, the fifth test of their Starship uh, it looked like a silo flying about 150 meters up into the air and landing back down with a raptor engine it was really cool it was a great success for spacex which a video of it from nasa spaceflight was retweeted by u.s president donald trump who added onto it quote nasa was closed and dead until i got it going again 
Now it is the most vibrant place of its kind on the planet, and we have Space Force to go along with it. We have accomplished more than any administration in the first three and a half years. Sorry, but it all doesn't happen with Sleepy Joe, close quote. There's a lot that people have been breaking down in those few sentences there of what actually is to his credit, what isn't, what where NASA got to, and was this even NASA, considering that this was a SpaceX test? Gene, I'll let you go first, and then Mark, I'll let you follow. Oh boy, Sawyer, where do I go? Where do I start with this? First off, yellow card. Um, to to I I don't want to go ahead and and you know far be it for me to sort of correct the president of the United States, but um, NASA was still alive and kicking kind of um, when uh, uh, you know he came into office. Um, we still had a lot of things going on. We had a continuous presence still on the International Space Station. Um, we are celebrating this year, as a matter of fact, 20 years of continuous presence on board the International Space Station. There's a generation alive today that has never known a time without a U.S. citizen orbiting above them uh in 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 earth orbit i i think that that's that's telling um also we have had untold amount of planetary exploration going on um we've had eyes on the skies you know from space telescopes that we we had previously launched um we've had space vehicles going to um all points of the solar system were the first you know, nation you know to toot our own horn a little bit it, this might sound at the risk of sounding jingoistic um we are the first nation if you will to have completed the full reconnaissance of the solar system so to say that you know nasa was, was cold and dead um i i think is a little bit of a, a wrong um, to say the to say the very least, I think think things were were actually okay. What it did, but going on the premise that even a busted alarm clock is is correct twice a day, a lot of things have changed, and the complexion of things have changed over the past few years. Yeah, you know, we we've we've had you know three spacecraft in the pipeline. One made its debut. We have a, another one that kind of made a cautious debut that we're working on currently. Orion was kind of also in the pipeline. So in, in essence, before this president came along, we had not one but three piloted spacecraft in the pipeline. Um, one is finally, you know, showed its promise and showed its fruition, you know, show, come to fruition and showed its promise. There's a second one waiting in the wings that will um, talk about uh, a, a little later and of course there's there's um there's orion um waiting to to be for its first flight sometime in 2021 so you know to say that that we don't have a vibrant program I, again i i have to take umbrage with that however i will say that jim bridenstine was probably 
one of the more successful appointments that this administration made. Um, without that appointment, I don't think we would have the Artemis program that is gearing up to uh, take um, humans to the moon and use the moon as a platform to learn how to, how to, go, to go to Mars. Um, I don't think we would have had the, the revival of the National Space Council and some of the policy issues that have come out of that have been, you know, have been pretty darn good um, for, for, for the space program. And indeed, um, I think the, the, the budget that, you know, we current, that NASA currently has, I don't think would have come about without this administration. So, um, disagree. So let me just finish the thought. (laughs) Go ahead. Without this administration, because that, that administration has gone ahead and, and kind of put their money where their mouth is. Um, they, they finally have not only bicameral support in, in the house and in the legislature for, for some of these programs, but they also have a, have an executive branch that is putting its money where its mouth is. So what is, are things kind of correct in there? you know, maybe 30%. So, you know, yeah, generally I say, you know, yellow card for anybody who follows what they call football in Europe or soccer here, um, yellow card on, on that thought. But by the same token too, I think the appointment of Bridenstine, Jim Bridenstine as, as, as NASA administrator would probably be the one of the more brilliant appointments that this this administration made, and a lot of things that have happened would not have occurred without Bridenstine in office. Yeah, well, uh, I don't disagree with the essence of what you're saying, but honestly, the space program is something that, for decades, has really enjoyed some. You know, both parties support it; both parties benefit from it. And they get a lot of uh, cooperation on things. The, the perennial problem is always support from year to year to allow the programs that, that NASA is directed to move forward with to be supported sufficient to get to the actual starting point and flight and the midpoint and maturity of programs. Um, I don't really think that I don't know. I miss Charlie Bolden. I think Charlie Bolden did a great job as administrator. Um, Mr. Bridenstine, he's doing a great job, too. I'm glad he got picked. Um, I was kind of surprised. I remember I think we talked about him some at, when he was first uh, an appointee and kind of wondered, you know, who's this guy? Where's he coming from? But good choice. I'll agree with that. Um, and I'd like to just turn the clock back, uh, 2010, 2011, as the end of the shuttle program was coming, there were so many people from that point on that I know we all ran into that said, oh, well, this is pretty much uh, it for NASA. What are they going to do? And I'm looking at a little chart here that shows year by year the number of U.S. launches. And in 2009, there were 23 
2010, there was 15. The next year, 17. 2012, 13, bit of a low point. Uh, next year, 22, then 18, then 29, then 34, last year, 21. And certainly a lot of those uh, launches we have SpaceX to thank for because they've certainly come in, ramped up their game and been very successful at what they're doing. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly don't think that any one president is going to, you know, get credit for, for what's going on today when it's things that started years before. And honestly, like I said at the beginning, take a lot of uh, cooperation from both parties in Washington to make them happen. Well, again, the commercial the stuff that you're talking about, Mark, indeed, that, that, that kind of started way before we didn't have, a, you know, we, we kind of seeded the market, if you will, for, for the longest time to Russia in that um, for commercial launch. Um, we just, you know, we, because we thought the shuttle was going to be the be all and end all, um, a lot of our uh you know, commercial launch capabilities was really, really thrown on the shuttle in the early eighty in the early and mid eighties, and then Challenger happened, and that kind of changed the complexion of of that thing. And uh, but from that point forward, we really had had the the hardest time in the world trying to get commercial launch back. Um, we finally succeeded, in fact, um, and and that has to be credited whether you like it or not that has to be credited to spacex because they they were able to go ahead and help revive you know help revive that market uh and bring it back to the united states but that whole environment was made you know possible because of certain changes and, and that could be all you know oh shoot that can be be brought all the way back to a a certain individual back in in around 2000, I want to say around 2005, 2006, um, and that was the uh, uh, the NASA administrator at the time, Mike Griffin, who decided that yeah, maybe we ought to go ahead and 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 try this this commercial um, cargo thing out first for the for the International Space Station. The shuttle is you know, kind of going to go away. So let's try this out and see, let's take it out for a spin and see if it works. What um, the, the, the previous administration did was, was go ahead and try to use that same model for transporting crew. And gosh darn it, the, it came to fruition just a couple of weeks ago. But I, I, I dare say that that would not have been possible had that not that that decision back in two around 2004 2005 not been made i i could be wrong on the date date don't get you know but that's basically when you know the commercial cargo ass piece of that was born now this this part of the 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 thing is running with that even further that's how we're going to be going ahead and and put our our landers together we're just basically giving you know the uh, the freedom to innovate, if you will, to to certain contractors that are going to go ahead and build this lander for us. We have to say, okay, fine. It has to do this, 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 and this. You guys figure it out, and and we'll let the chips fall where they may. So, you know, and, and to to back you up a little bit, you know, we are taking that 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 particular paradigm and running with it. You know, but I'm going to go 
back on this again and basically say, you know, a, a lot of some of the other stuff that's been going on, a.k.a. Artemis, a.k.a. the, the, the Artemis Accords, which are a, a set of behaviors that if you're going to go ahead and, and sign on board with NASA to go ahead and explore the moon, th these are the set of behaviors you're going to have to go ahead and, and, and follow. Um, a lot of what has happened, and I'm not talking about commercial crew here, but a lot of what's been happening since, you know, Gateway, Artemis, all of that, I don't think would have happened under, um, <laughs> under another administration. Yeah, I realize they could be canceled at the drop of a hat, though. And how many, how many times have we changed course in the last half dozen years? And one of the things that this administrator has been trying to do is to kind of buttress that from happening, which is why the program is being accelerated to begin with, to try to go ahead and, and insulate that from political risk. Um, he and and that's one of the things I'll applaud um, uh, Jim Bridenstine for, that he's trying his, his, his darndest to try to go ahead and insulate all of that from the, those cancellation risks. Right now, we've got enough international agreements around Artemis and around the Gateway and so on that if they were to be canceled, hmm, um, you know, the, the, it would, would kind of... It, it, our, our name would basically be mud, if you will. Um, so, and, and again, I'm not, not putting anything, taking anything away from Charlie Bolden. Charlie Bolden was magnificent. It was because of him that we actually had commercial crew to begin with, because he was one of the, one of the biggest champions of that program. And he really, really worked hard. Same with cargo. He really, really worked hard to try to make sure that both commercial crew and commercial cargo worked and worked well. Um, and even, even Jim Bridenstine gave General Bolden all the, all the kudos that he possibly could to make sure that, you know, to, to let him know that, hey, you know, the commercial crew wouldn't have happened without you. And, and so, uh, but I, I still maintain that if it weren't, for for the current administration, we would not have Artemis. We wouldn't have a lot of a lot of the the future plans that we've we've got now going. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna play with your uh, brain a little bit here. You know, one of the other parties that we've got to give a lot of credit to has been our other launch partner that has taken astronauts to station since the end of the shuttle program, and that's the Russians. You know, they they have uh, they have done what we didn't have the capability to do, and they've done it well. And uh, I dare say that, you know, from 2012 on, our success is is due to the fact that they were there and that we made a, a plan, made an agreement and uh, flew with the Russians. Which we paid dearly for. Right, we're not paying for this. I'd, I'd like, I'd like to see what the cost per seat is. Uh, I know it's less because Elon says it's less, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I kind of wonder. Well, I believe, and, and I, I don't remember what the last price was, but I, I think we were nearly, you know, because that that price started out at. I believe 60 million and uh, uh, per seat 
and kind of got jacked up as as things went forward. Also, um, I, I, to the point where you know I think they're almost like ninety almost 90 million a seat at this point. Oh, it should be more expensive than that. We should be gouged for being so foolish to allow it to happen in the first place. Well, that's, I'll get this right back full circle again. It's what Bridenstine is trying to avoid. The other thing too that I, I have to stick in there is that he's making sure that there there isn't a time where the United States does not have a foothold in space. So he's allowing, you know, commercial to go ahead and 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 develop in low Earth orbit so NASA can go off and do the, the big heavy lifting things, going off and doing all the daring things that we want to do. But there will still be a U.S. presence in low Earth orbit because he's hoping, you know, by getting SpaceX in, involved in this, hey, now we've got a, an actual service going to and from low Earth orbit. Um, I'll, I'm going to throw Boeing in there, too, because eventually they will be taking crew back and forth to the International Space Station. And once that you know program ends and the ISS isn't there anymore, a company called uh, Axum is going to be attaching first a few modules to the International Space Station. And then once, once the ISS has ended, they take over. And lo and behold, those those folks, you know, who are led by um, the former um, ISS program manager, Mike Suffordini, um, will be taking over from the ISS and, and hopefully profiting from um, having, you know, commercial endeavors, commercial production of, uh, of, of things in low earth orbit that we just simply can't produce here again he's setting up the whole idea of having a commercial presence in low earth orbit still having u.s astronauts in low earth orbit and or or even u.s researchers or whatever he's setting up an environment where you can go ahead and have that but still nasa goes off and does the heavy lifting stuff going to the moon making sure that all our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed in exploration and then pushing out to Mars. So I'm going to make another statement. I I don't really think it would be controversial, but it may be surprising. My hope is that in the future, the astronauts of the world can shop for their uh, vehicle or uh, launch opportunity with the Russians, with the U.S., uh, I think there's even a possibility that with the uh, recent launch to Mars that uh, United Arab Emirates may be a, uh, a crew launch contender sometime in the future. What about India? I, there's certainly a lot of people that I hope are part of the mix and that we're not still stuck talking about the U.S. having a launch a year capability 10 years from now. Yeah, I was about to mention uh, the Guyane program, and I'm probably mauling that name. Um, in fact, I believe they've got several um, possible contender, contenders for flights training in Star City right now. I think they're going to be there till pretty much the beginning of, uh, 20, uh, of uh, 2021, and then they will be, um, you know, I guess, getting ready for, for a possible flight if 
the if the spacecraft is ready so there's a lot of people in the game the the the, the question is is you know all these systems going to be compatible and all that and if they're using the uh, international docking adapter then great and, and by the way that that um IDA, the platform for that, is available online for anybody that wants to take a deep dive into it. And if you're using that international docking adapter, like we we are using in all of our vessels um, lately, uh, that means congratulations, you're basically compatible with everything else that we're we're doing. Um, and by the way, that's a standard that was developed by NASA, um, and, uh, that, that pretty much now everybody's following. So, uh, there are things out there, but again, I'm going to just go ahead and, and try to bring this, uh, one more time full circle. You know, some of the, the stuff that we we're seeing for the future, um, is being laid down by the current. NASA administration by the, and by the current administration in the White House. I'll say that it's, you know, the, the yellow card is about 70% deserved. There's a lot of things that are, that were happening within NASA. NASA was far from this inert husk that the president said it was. Um, but is it better off today because of what's been going on, and I'm forced to say yes. Oh, and I didn't mean to leave them out, but China's got a space program too. They're launching crew. Yeah, they are. Um, however, you know, but when was the last time they did it? Yeah, they're they're at the beginning. Yeah, you know that. And, and will they cooperate with uh, worldwide efforts? I don't. Who knows? That's you know that that's that's a pro, that's a whole program in and of itself. Yeah, I think. yeah. I, I shouldn't have said that. I should have let one of our listeners correct me. Hey, what about the Chinese? Yeah, you know. Sorry that, about that. Yeah, but that that yeah that that's a whole program in and of itself. You know, as far as their participation and all this. Yeah, they can still correct us, tweeting us at Talking Space, Facebook.com slash Talking Space, email mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Of course, you can always comment on this episode on whatever platform you're listening to as well. So uh, I'm sure we'll hear from some people. On that note, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulloch. Thank you, Sawyer. And before I go, I just want to note the passing of uh, Michael Freelich, Um who was head of NASA's Earth Science Program, and he was he was a giant in in that program. In in plain English, his uh, signature is on ISAT two. He signed that that satellite, which is orbiting above us overhead, taking uh, ice measurements and so on, and trying to make sure that uh, Earth Earth's you know ice supply is still healthy. Um, to quote. Uh, uh, Jim Bridenstine, Mike's excellence as a scientist is well known. His dedication to oceanography and help training the next generation of scientific leaders was inspiring. Uh, he won numerous, numerous awards throughout his career and was NASA's honor to join our colleagues at the European Space Agency, the Euro European Organization for Exploration of Meteorological Satellites, and the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration to name the Sentinel-6 satellite, which is part of the, uh, uh, the uh, Copernicus Sentinel series, after Michael Freilich. Um, that happened a while back ago. Um, 
but again, uh, just to note his passing and note his contributions to earth science, and uh, uh, we will dearly miss his insights. Well said. And thank you for joining us as well, Mark Ratterman. I'll see you next time. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for this long episode of Talking Space. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever may be, where you are, wash your hands, and wear a mask. 